Isn't it wonderful the love that God has for us? I think sometimes we doubt it. I hope by the end of our message today, you don't. Um, that's really where we're going to be headed. I do want to welcome those joining us online today. I'm Pastor Zach. Shelly and I serve as lead pastors here at Connection Point. We're so glad that you're here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Today is a day where we really celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Of course, we do every Sunday. Of course, if, if you didn't, we're unaware. That's why we meet on Sundays. That's why the early church said we're going to celebrate on Sundays because we're going to every week celebrate the resurrection. And now on Easter, we're going to celebrate it all the more. So he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. May we live in that resurrection power. Uh, does anybody know what is required of all relationships? Every re- uh, relationship you have in your life requires one quality, one characteristic. Communication. Communication, okay, that's important. That's a good one. That's good marriage advice. But trust, trust is what's required. For every relationship you have in your life, trust is required. I mean, even as simple as if you have internet, you need to trust the cable company will provide it. Your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with coworkers, colleagues, neighbors, every relationship in your life requires trust. And if there's one relationship that's more important than the rest, it's our relationship with God. And so the question I want to answer this morning goes to that, which is, can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Um, how many have ever been to a used car lot, bought a car from a used car lot? Oh man, people are snickering already. I actually had somebody that was a used car salesman in the first service said, now be nice. Because <laughs> I'm asking the question, can you be trusted? And I go to used car salesman. But it's important for you to buy a car from someone, don't you need to trust them? Absolutely. Uh, before I was going to my junior year in college, I was living in Chicago and went to college down in Florida. I needed a reliable car to get me to and from college. So I went to some uh, used car lots. The first one I went to, I drove a car, seemed like a good car, asked the salesman about it. He introduced me to other salesmen who basically said, hey, look, if the car's in good shape now, then it should be in good shape down the road. So I looked at it more closely and realized the car was uh, pretty well rusted. Uh, So that was not a good car. And uh, I didn't really trust those guys. So I went to the next used car lot. Went to that lot and met a salesman who reminded me of Chris Farley. How many want to buy a used car from Chris Farley? <laughs> Some people are like, yes, I'd like to do that. Uh, I didn't. Um, I like him as a comedian, not so much as a used car salesman. So I went and checked out a car. It wouldn't start. So then he went to go get some uh, cables to jumpstart the car, proceeded to walk through lots of puddles along the way. So by the time he gets there, he's like soaked and he's got electrical cables. <laughs> I just said, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go check for another spot for a car. I just didn't go there. So then I went to the next lot, and I found a guy that I really found to be trustworthy. And I bought a car there. So this is my uh, junior year in college. I owned the car for 10 years. It ran great uh, for 10 years. It was $3,000. Man, $3,000 car that will run for a decade. I need more cars like that. It was an awesome car. In fact, even when Shelly and I went overseas, so I, I kept it all in, up until the time we went to Sudan, and I actually gave the car away, and it ran for a long time thereafter. It was a great car. So for me to buy a car, I needed to trust that used car salesman. That's important. Trust is important. And trust of God is even more important. If you don't feel like you can trust God, what kind of relationship can you have with him? So that's the question I want to answer this morning. And and where I want to go is to a passage of scripture, Luke 22, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the moments that are leading up to his trial and crucifixion. 
And what we find in that passage in Luke 22 is Jesus is praying and he's basically having a hard time with what God's will is. But what does he say? He basically says, Lord, your will be done. I know you can be trusted. And so I want to start there this morning. So if you have your Bibles, hey, I hope you have a Bible. We say it every Sunday. Why? Because I want you to have a Bible. It's important to have a copy of God's word. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you're welcome to take one from underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one at home, take it home as a gift from the church. We want you to have a copy of God's word. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Just simply out of reverence for the fact that God gave his word to us. And so we want to look at that word in a special way. So Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, so Luke is writing here, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. In the the passage that we just read, what's happened is Jesus has just shared a Passover meal with his disciples. And now he's going to the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives is a place called the Garden at Gethsemane. And he's going to take some time to pray there. And in his prayer, it seems he's struggling with God's will. I think we miss that sometimes. I think we miss that Jesus was fully man and fully God. I think we miss the fully man part sometimes. If he struggled with God's will, how many know you and I are going to struggle too? Of course we are. But then the question is, can we still put our trust in God? Because that's what Jesus did. So he's struggling, but part of the question we've got to ask ourselves as we look at this story is, will God intervene in this situation? Is God truly good? He's all-knowing and he's all-powerful, but is he good? Because if he isn't all good, we would never be able to trust God. So that's where I'd like to start this morning. In pursuit to the answer to the question, can God be trusted? Let's start with this one. Is God good? Is he good? Uh, I think the the first time we've already got an answer, (laughs) and I believe it this morning. (laughs) The first time I I really questioned the goodness of God uh, was during Shelly and I's first miscarriage. Uh, Shelly and I were married when we were 22. I look back on that and realize we were kids when we were married. Um, we've lived a lot. Of, the older I get, the more I realize, like, man, what were we thinking? I'll tell you, it was a good, good choice for me. Shelly says it is, but, you know, you wonder about that sometimes. <laughs> 22. Um, but I tell you, we, uh, a couple of years after getting married, had decided we'd like to start a family. But we were having a hard time getting pregnant. So we went and visited with some doctors and... Uh, some doctors eventually figured out some answers. They gave some fertility medicine to Shelly. She began to take that medicine, and, and it was effective. Within months, Shelly was pregnant. But then eight weeks later, later she had a miscarriage. That was hard. At this point, we were 28, and for the last previous five years, we had been hoping to start a family, and it was through struggle. Um, if you've ever gone through that process, so the process for us is it required taking uh, daily temperature charts, um, I realized, I, I thought about this after the first service. So my background is in, uh, my undergraduate's in math education. So a math guy. And I think that's why I was assigned the charts. Like I had to fill out the charts, which meant every morning, 5 a.m., alarm goes off. Shelly takes the temperature, but I'm the chart guy. I'm filling out the chart. So this is months and months of filling out charts. And it's been a process for us to try to figure out. And now we've gone through this process. We thought we had an answer. And then, 
you know, we had a miscarriage. And so I began to doubt the goodness of God. In fact, this happened at a time when a song that was popular in the church was a song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And if you don't know the song, there's a line in there that says, you give and take away, you give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. I had a really hard time with that song. How could a good God have allowed this to happen? How could a good God be okay with the difficulty we were having in starting a family? How could a good God allow us to walk through a miscarriage? You ever had those kinds of questions? Maybe different circumstances, but same question. Maybe you've come into this room today and you have that question still. The problem is there's this narrative that's been going around for several millennia that God is an angry God. I think this is where this stems from. Nearly all ancient religions are built on a narrative that says we have to do something in order to get the blessings of the gods. And conversely, if we anger the gods, then we're going to be punished. This is a common narrative. In fact, it's a narrative that's prevalent among Christians. So there's a study that was conducted at Baylor University that, co- that concluded that 37% of Christians believe that God is watching us closely, eager to punish us for even minor infractions. So this is a narrative a lot of Christians live with. After our miscarriage, I remember Shelley and I wondering, is there something we did? Did we, did we do something that caused this to happen? We knew the answer, but still that narrative in our mind was playing out. And maybe you lived with that false narrative yourself. Maybe you're still living with that narrative even now. Maybe you grew up in an environment that reinforced the idea that God is just waiting around to punish you. And so you live with this narrative, essentially then believing that God is not really good. But looking for answers to this question, is God good? The Bible is a great place to look for answers. And what does Jesus say? Here's what he says. Recorded in Matthew 19:17, he said, there is only one who is good. And he's referring to God the Father. In all of his stories, when you look at the writings of Jesus, Jesus describes a God who seems altogether good and is always out for our good, even if we can't understand it. One of the occasions where Jesus confronts the angry God narrative, we can find this in John chapter 9. This is a great place to look at this. Jesus encounters a man who's born blind, and he's asked a question by his disciples. So his disciples were living in this narrative themselves. Here's what they said. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The religious teachers in Jesus' day, they taught that illnesses were caused by the sins of the parents or by the person themselves, that that's what would cause illness. Because this man was born blind, they assumed it was the parents that, that had sinned. But there was also the teaching in that day that it said that infants can sin within the womb. So that's why they're asking, was it his parents or was it him who sinned? So the question is, how does Jesus respond? What's the answer that he gives? Does he endorse the rabbinic position that perhaps this man's parents committed a sin or maybe the man himself in the womb? Jesus was given an opportunity to affirm this narrative, but he refuses to. Here's the answer Jesus gives. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus doesn't reinforce that false narrative. Jesus makes it clear there's no correlation between someone's sin and his or her sickness. And what does Jesus do in this situation? He heals the man's blindness. So not only did he not affirm what the disciples were asking, this false narrative of an angry God, but he says, watch this. This man wasn't meant to be born blind. That's because of the fall of man, and I'm going to take care of it right here and now. 
Jesus looked on the man's plight, and instead of retribution for some offense committed either by his parents or himself, he takes it as an opportunity to do God's work. Jesus did not consider the blindness as a punishment or a matter of irrational chance. It was a challenge to manifest God's healing power in his life. So Jesus says, we're not working with an angry God here. God doesn't want this man to be born blind, so I'm going to display God's power through him. Jesus abolishes the notion that we get what we deserve. God's not in the business of balancing some eternal checkbook. Don't live in that narrative. Shelly and I knew our difficulty in starting a family was not God's punishment for something we'd done. We knew it, but it was still hard to get past that since that was our thinking at the time. So a couple of months after Shelly had had that miscarriage, she became pregnant again. Nine months later, we received a healthy baby boy who we named Nathaniel, whose name means gift from God, because he was our gift from God, and we knew it. In fact, we have three gifts from God, and they're awesome kids. We've faced some hardships still along the way, but I can tell you we don't doubt God's goodness. God is good. In the book of Matthew, Jesus uses a famous phrase to show that God treats all people the same. Here's what it says. Jesus says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is telling us an obvious truth. Just as sunshine and rain are given equally to all people, believers and unbelievers, so God gives blessings to all regardless of their behavior. Here's what we know in the world today. Terrible things do happen to wonderful people. And wonderful things seem to happen to awful people sometimes. So we can't look around the world we live in and build a case that evil people are always punished and followers of Jesus are always safe and secure. We, we don't live in that kind of world. Reality does not bear this out. Jesus shows us a God who is good, but how can we be sure when we live in a world that questions this? For God to be good, he'd have to be pure. So that's the second question I want to answer. Is God pure? Is he holy? We find at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, we have this picture of eternity, and there's creatures that are around the throne of God, and they are they're in mantra-like statements saying over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what's being proclaimed over God for all of eternity. God is holy. He is pure. The essence of God is holiness. You'll find this all throughout the Bible. Holiness is a divine attribute. God is pure. There is no sin, evil, or darkness about him. And thank God for that. But then the question is, well, how can a holy God have anything to do with imperfect people? How can I expect a holy God to have anything to do with me as an imperfect person? We just talked about the false narrative regarding an angry God who judges us harshly. But usually this idea plays out in people's minds because they know that God is holy, that he is pure. So if God is holy, then he must be angry, even wrathful towards sin or evil, which we in turn think it means that God must be mad all of the time. That's how we interpret that. We think that wrath and anger are essential to God's nature because he is holy and the world is not. God, people assume, is, is mad at all of the sin that he sees and he's ready to bring the divine hammer down when he gets really fed up. And this is part of the reason why we don't think God is good, which would mean that he can't be trusted. If God's not good, he can't be trusted. So is he good? Is he pure? So I'd say our problem might be this morning that we need a better definition and understanding of God's wrath. Some people, they, they run away from, from the angry God narrative, and what they do is they chase after God as love 
and they run too far then in the wrong direction. They define love in human terms and they think of God as some cosmic benevolent spirit who never judges, does not punish sin, and sends no one to hell. This teddy bear God has become a very fashionable alternative to the wrathful God of days gone by. But is this narrative any closer to Jesus' narrative concerning his father? That's the question. I'll tell you the, the cushy, fuzzy God is neither biblical nor is it loving. And I think we miss this. The teddy bear God seems inviting at first, and I think that's why we could look to that. But when you look at our world or look deeply into our own hearts, you see a darkness that's unmistakable. And here's what's important. A non-wrathful God is powerless against darkness. A God that is not against evil can't do anything to war against it. So as strange as it might sound, the wrath of God is actually a beautiful part of the majesty and the love of God. God is love and he is holy. God is love and he is pure. And out of love, he's working his holiness in us so that you might experience wholeness. I want you to get that. Here's the point. Because God loves us, because God loves you, he doesn't want evil to reign in your life. So he wants to come against it. He's warring against evil in your life. When we think of love, we think of simply an emotion or a feeling. So we hear that God is love and we make the assumption that God is crazy in love with us. You know, uh, I've even heard songs sung about wet sloppy kisses from God. Anyone ever heard that song? Of course. So this is the kind of thinking that we think about when God is love, but the kind of love that God holds for us has a different definition. Here's the definition for the love of God. Love is to will the good of another. Love is to will the good of another. In fact, that kind of love has no bounds. When you will the good for someone else, you're willing to be self-sacrificing to make sure it happens. I see this with parents. They're willing to sacrifice themselves if it means their kids can have a better start in life. That's the kind of love that God holds for us. Now, I do want to be clear that God's love is not dispassionate. It's just that God's love is a lot more like a parent's love to their child than it is more like a, a newly engaged couple. The love of God is not an emotion that goes up and down. It remains steady. How many are thankful for that? We want God's love to be steady. Absolutely. When we hear the word wrath, we might imagine someone in a fit of rage who's lost all reason and control. Uh, think about even the word wrath. Like you can't say wrath. Like it's just some nice word, right? He was wrathful. You can't say that, right? No, like wrath, you've got to say it with this, this tone. Wrath is such a strong word that we only use for extreme cases. Wrath is a polite way of describing someone who's crossed from anger into rage. That's what wrath is. So when we speak of the wrath of God, we imagine that God is irrationally full of rage, ready to make heads roll because things haven't been going right. In the same way that God's love is not a silly, sappy feeling but rather a consistent desire for the good of his people. This is God's love. He wants the good of his people. He loves us that way. So in the same way, the wrath of God is not a crazed rage, but rather a consistent opposition to sin and evil. God wants to come against sin. He wants to come against evil. The wrath of God is not like human wrath, which is reckless and irrational passion. God's wrath is mindful, it's objective, and it's rational. It's an act of love. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil, and I'm thankful for that. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. 
God is against those things which mean you harm. How many are glad for a God like that? So when we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about him coming against those things that mean your ruin. That's what God's wrath is. God loves us so much that he longs for us to be pure. Here's four words that are powerful. Love loves unto purity. Love loves unto purity. God loves us so much. He wants us to be pure, to be made whole, and he works tirelessly to try to see this happen. Wrath is a necessary reaction of a loving and holy God to evil. That's what wrath is. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Of course not. That wouldn't be a good God. I don't want a God who's indifferent to moral evil. I'm thankful for God's loving wrath because it's his loving way of dealing with evil. But then the question is, the last one I want to answer is, is God love? Because we have to believe that he's love to understand this definition of, of God's wrath. But is he love? Many people live with the assumption that God's love is conditional, that our behavior, it's assumed, it determines how God feels about us. So God's love is constantly in flux. This is what some people think. It's as if God were on some kind of a swivel chair like I'm on this morning. And so what happens is he, he's looking at us and smiling at us so long as we keep our minds, our hands, and our hearts pure. But the moment we sin, we think then, well, God turns his back on us. And we think that God doesn't turn back around until we've started to act in the right manner again. But let me ask you this question. Is this love? Is this the way that God loves? Some of you might think that, but let me tell you this morning, that's not the kind of love that God has for you. He doesn't turn his back on you. Absolutely not. God's love is not performance-based. You cannot earn God's favor. Instead of God's love being performance-based, God's love is unconditional. You need to hear that today. God's love is not performance-based. Look, we might have school systems that are performance-based. God doesn't work that way. God's love is unconditional. There are many narratives. As you read through the New Testament, you can find this over and over. And, and I'd like to share one with you from the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, here's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus calls sinners. Matthew was a tax collector, which was a despicable occupation for Jewish men. Tax collectors typically sat in roadside booths, like toll booths, collecting taxes from Jewish people for the Roman government. Basically, tax collectors, they worked for the enemy. And even worse, they were notorious for skimming off the top. So they worked for the enemy and they stole from the Jewish people. They were thought of as traitors and cheats. And in this passage, Jesus invites Matthew, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And this is amazing, considering that in the first century, a rabbi was usually very selective when choosing his disciples. Being selected by a rabbi was a rare and great privilege that was offered only to those who were deemed as good people. Matthew was not a good person, but Jesus chose him anyway. And after being chosen, Matthew, he invites Jesus to eat a meal in his home, which is a sign of allegiance to Jesus. 
And of course, Matthew, his friends are tax collectors and other kinds of shady people. So the Pharisees, they ask Jesus about the company that he's keeping. And Jesus tell them he's not just come for the healthy, but he's come for the sick. Not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. The funny thing is, the Pharisees, they're just as sick and in need of a savior as the tax collectors. But the tax collectors, they have no pretense. They understand their spiritual condition. So maybe a, a case for pause this morning. Are you honest with your spiritual condition this morning? Do you understand your need of a savior? The good news for all of us is Jesus reached out to known scoundrels, which means the rest of us have a chance. Jesus comes for sinners, for those outcasts like tax collectors. He comes for corporate executives, farmers, teachers, addicts, AIDS victims. He comes for business owners and used car salesmen. He comes for us all. A scripture that we're well familiar with. And I want to read both 16 and 17 because I think we miss it sometimes. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here's verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Do we serve a loving God? Absolutely. But now if we're honest, part of our struggle is all of this seems too good to be true. It really does. Jesus' narrative of unconditional acceptance, it goes against the grain of the performance-based narrative that is so deeply embedded in our lives. We live in a culture that says, do, 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 and this is what makes you acceptable. God doesn't say that. I think some people would be more comfortable if this is what Jesus said. Here's another version, which is a wrong version. But this is what people would be okay with. For God was so mad at the world that he sent his son to come down and tell them to shape up. That whosoever would shape up would have eternal life. Like, people would be more comfortable with that. Indeed, God did send his son into the world to condemn it in order that the world might be saved through good works. Is this what it says? Is this what Jesus said? Absolutely not. But some people are more comfortable with it this way. Jesus does not say that God saves or loves a few. It doesn't say that he loves some or that he even loves many. He says he loved the world. He loves the world. And the world as we know it, in case you're unaware, it's full of sinners, which means God loves sinners. God loves in spite of the broken and sinful condition of mankind. And this is the only proof, this is great proof for us of the genuine love of God. And how was his love expressed? On a cross. The cross is a symbol of God's love for you. For it's on the cross that Jesus willingly paid the price for your sin. A New Testament follower of Jesus named Paul, he writes in a book called Romans, and here's what he shares. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's God's love for us. The love of Jesus is a self-sacrificing love that led him to lay down his life for you. We had a service here on Good Friday, and we were talking about the cross. And I told people, you know, so often I've heard, you know, people question, they doubt, does God really love me? How can God love me? And when you look at the cross, you have to ask the question, what more could he have done for you? You don't need to doubt God's love for you. The cross is the example we have of God's ultimate sacrifice and love for you. Jesus, he struggled with God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, but then what did God do? How did God intervene? How did God show up? Here's what we find in Luke chapter 24. It says, but on the first day of the week, so on a Sunday, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. 
and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? What a great question. He is not here. Why? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? So, can God be trusted? Absolutely God can be trusted. Even Jesus who struggled to say, I don't know about your will, Father God, but I'm going to trust you anyway. And he's trusted to the point where we got to have an experience and see the resurrection take place. But not only that, what we find for Jesus is that he ascends to the right hand of God. In the book of Hebrews it says, but when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And this is the promise for all of those who believe. We don't need to question God's love for us. We don't need to question his goodness because we all, it says, as we believe in who Jesus is, have the promise of meaning and purpose in this life and life everlasting. But the question for you this morning is, have you put your trust in God? Do you trust him in this way? Have you put your faith and hope and love in him? I want to tell you, God is good. God is pure. He's holy. God is love, which tells us this morning that God can be trusted. Do you trust God today? Do you trust him with everything that you are? Do you trust him with your kids? Do you trust him with provision? Where's your trust this morning? Do you trust God or are you putting trust in yourself? Have you accepted the love of God or are you looking for love somewhere else outside of God? I can tell you everywhere else that you look in this life for love or where you put your trust, it will fall short. God is the only thing in your life that can be steady and be trusted. So I'd encourage you to put your trust in God today. He loves you so much he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. How could your life look different if you put your trust in God? What kind of confidence could you have if you knew that God could be trusted, I can follow him and I'm going to be okay? That's the kind of confidence God wants you to live with. And you're not going to know that kind of confidence until you put your faith in Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close in song this morning. And we're going to sing about the love of God. If we understand God's love for us, then we know that he can be trusted. But before we sing, I, I want to ask, maybe you're here this morning and you've never really put your full faith and trust in God. And it starts there. You're not going to have confidence that God can be trusted until you first say, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, that you were resurrected from the dead, that you sit at the right hand of the Father. You're interceding for me there. So if you find yourself there this morning, you say, I really have not up to this point put my trust in God, but I have a desire to do so today. With every head bowed in this room, I just want to give you that opportunity before we leave from this place. Don't walk out from here not sure of who you are in God. You're meant to be a child of God. You are a child of God. Jesus says, follow me. And so the question is, will you accept that invitation this morning? So if you're here today and you'd say, I need to put my faith and trust in God today. Simply raise your hand. We want to pray with you before you leave from this place. Anybody here today that'd say, that's me. In the middle right here, anybody else that would say, that's me. I need to put my faith in God today. I need to put my trust in him. Over here on the left, anybody else that'd say, that's me. I need to put trust in God today. I've been living without hope, living without confidence, living without the love of my Savior. We want to get you reconnected to your Creator today. Over here on the left, anybody else? Anybody say, that's me. I need my trust in God. 
I want to choose to accept that invitation to follow him today. God, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you sent your son. Lord, not to condemn the world, but to save it. So we see the path in front of us. So Jesus, I pray that we grab a hold of it today firmly and put our complete faith, hope, and trust in you and not waver. Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to live for you for a lifetime. I just pray that those that are here that are struggling with confidence in you as a good, good father today, I just pray, Lord, that you'd give them confidence of that today. May they know you as good. May they know you as pure. May they know you as love today. Firm that in people's lives. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite Pastor Mark to come and some of the people from our prayer team this morning. If you were on the prayer team, if you could help us, we had several people raise their hands this morning. And all that we want to do is you're in an incredibly safe space of people that congratulate and applaud you for saying, I want to dedicate my life to Jesus. So if you raise your hand, could you come down this morning? We just want to applaud you today and say, thank you, God, that you found a relationship with him. Amen. If you made that decision, we know the enemy wants to come against that, that he although is not for you, although that God is. And so all we want to do is say, hey, here's the Bible. Here's information on what it looks like to follow Jesus for a lifetime. So we don't want to leave you alone in your faith. We make that decision to come to Christ alone, but we grow in Christ together. So we want you to have that opportunity to be supported in that way this morning. So as we sing, even if you didn't raise your hand, but you say, you know what? I need to have that confidence in God this morning. Feel free to come down here to the front and we'll get you a Bible and information on where you go from here. But may we sing about the love of God and may you walk out with that kind of confidence today.